This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And away we go, the Bob Olin Show here on the 16th of January. Good morning, Bob. Oh, are you there, Bob? I am with you, Dave. All right, good to have you here this morning in this cold weather. You staying warm? Uh, yeah, doing pretty good, <laughs> although I've been trying to get a little bit of uh, New Year's resolution, a little more activity walking, even ah. if it's a challenge in this weather, I'll tell you that. Good. But, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, and of course, those that have been around for a while, what we get... Uh, Minus 10, minus 15, minus 16, that's really not that cold by our traditional standards, is it, Dave? True, we've seen, well, the record low for this date, for instance, 31 below. That was in 1982, so it can really get cold, too, about this time of year. Yeah, and I believe we've got a warm-up coming next week. That's what they're saying, back to more normal temperatures, which would be 20 for this time of year. Right. You know, we've... uh, we touched on it just a little bit last week, but it's kind of interesting. We have had a revision in the U.S. Department of Agriculture's plant hardiness zones, and uh, I thought I'd clarify a couple little things there. You know, this is a this is a map that the U.S. Department of Agriculture does uh, for really the entire United States, from Alaska to Hawaii uh, down into South Florida, and uh, this is really about winter hardiness of perennial material. Because I had the question, well, what's this going to do for our tomatoes? Absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. because it's just uh, it's just really about uh, getting perennial material. Those are materials that are in the ground, trees, shrubs, ornamentals, uh, flowering perennials that are in the ground, and whether or not we can uh, get them through the winter and really impacts a lot of things. We've talked a little bit about uh, if you've got things in the ground, whether you've got a blanket of snow for insulation, that's a big factor. But this really trees and shrubs. If we take a look at your apple trees, your plump trees, your uh, ornamental trees of one type or another, just how hardy are they and can they make it through the winter? We take a look at a recent introduction that's got a lot of attention, the University of Minnesota Honeycrisp Apple, which is real interesting. You know, in Minnesota, we've got a, a really great uh, apple breeding program. Very interesting because it really came about because of uh, way back about the statehood time, late 1800s, that uh, the apple breeding program began. It really began because there were no real good edible apples. There were a few crabs that were winter hardy, but uh, not really a lot of edible apples. And as the agricultural area was opening up, as people were moving west, Apples were extremely important because they were a store of food for the winter months and sugar. People were really not aware of that, but sugar wasn't quite as readily available. There was a little honey, but there certainly wasn't the cane sugar and the beet sugar moving into the area as it uh, as it is now. And sugar became, and sweet uh, fruits became a very, very valuable commodity. But we didn't have anything here in Minnesota so consequently, uh, we had a few plant readers, Peter Gideon being the uh, the foremost individual there that brought materials in from the colder regions in southern Canada and upstate New York and started crossing them uh, with some of our uh, crab apples and trying to get winter-hardy apples for this area. First uh, first introduction I mentioned before was the wealthy, which is amazing because it's an oldie but a goodie. It's been around uh, since his introduction uh, around the turn of the century, and it's still, that's the 19th century, the turn of that century, and it's still in the market today. Wealthy, as I mentioned, he named it after his wife. It's, he didn't get wealthy at all. As a matter of fact, uh, died of a very meager existence, had a very meager existence, and didn't have much from all of his work and all of his efforts uh, for a lifetime. But nonetheless, he was committed to bringing apples to us. And that was the start of the University of Minnesota's apple breeding program that continues to this day. 
I mentioned Honeycrisp. The thing is, uh, our zones are warming up a little bit. When Honeycrisp was introduced, it became very, very popular. It was really introduced as a Zone 4 apple, which Zone 4, incidentally, is uh, right around the lake. You got the lake effect uh, there, so Superior and Duluth near the lake uh, certainly has been Zone 4, so it's an appropriate tree for that area. But, of course, it uh, it spread uh, to regions farther north because everyone wanted to grow it. And actually, for a number of years, people were successful. We had warmer winters, and Honeycrisp survived. And a lot of people were saying, well, that's a lot of nonsense. It's not. It's really a Zone 3 apple. Then we had an open winter or two, and it took out a lot of those Honeycrisp that were planted away from the lake. Uh, but we are seeing now just a gradual t- trend and a change in warming in our plant hardiness zones. And we now have got some areas just away from the lake, Hermantown and a little farther north, where, in fact, uh, we were zone uh, 3B. The zones, again, go from one, the coldest, to all the way down to eight, which is uh, tropical uh, down in Puerto Rico and so forth. But um, we went really from a zone 3B now with the new map just away from the lake a little bit to 4A. So uh, I think we are beginning with a slight warming in the climate uh, to open up more plant materials, Dave. And that's, that's one of the, uh, the better things for us, at least, about mm-hmm. things warming up just a little bit. It's going to open up another world. So some folks that have been maybe in the Cotton area or Hermantown area that weren't successful with Honeycrisp, I had a couple in. They did well for me for a number of years. Finally, I had to take them out. Uh, because the colder winters and more exposed winters uh, just damage them so tremendously. So it's time maybe to try again uh, Honeycrisp, and not just Honeycrisp, but there have been so many uh, tremendous additional introductions that have come from that that breeding material, and they are all about in that same four zone four winter hardiness. So we're warming up a little bit in the state of Minnesota. Uh, most, uh, about half of the zones stayed the same, and this is between the last introduction by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which was 2012, and the most recent, they came out with it late last year, November of 2023. About half the zones in Minnesota and Wisconsin stayed the same, and another half actually went up a, a half a zone. So they went from a uh, maybe a 3A to a 3B, or in the case of uh, over the hill in Duluth here, went from a 3B, which is colder, to a 4A, uh, about a half a zone difference, which represents about a change of uh, 5 degrees Fahrenheit as the minimum temperatures uh, through the winter and the coldest part of the winter. So things are warming up just a little bit. We don't want to jump the gun. Uh, a lot of people are looking for five uh, zone 5 material. There's some up in Bayfield uh, in the Twin Cities where we've got what we call kind of a Heat sink, uh, those two big cities, uh, downtown St. Paul, downtown Minneapolis, they're 5A and uh, 5B. In some cases, the, the, the zone 5 opens up a lot of additional perennial material, tree shrubs, as well as so many of the beautiful flowering materials. But we're not there yet. We don't want to jump the gun. Uh, we are warming up, but very, very gradually. So there's a little bit of an update. Uh, we're going to be looking forward to planting some of the newer materials that are coming from the University of Minnesota's uh, apple breeding program, for sure. Hard to believe that here in the middle of January, with temperatures below zero, we got to start thinking about uh, what you want to plant in your garden already in the spring. I imagine you got to get some of those uh, seeds ordered and ready to go, right? Well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of interest in gardening. 
and it's persisted, you know, with the uh, the uh, pandemic we had there with a lot of people at home. There was a huge surge that caught caught the seed industry by surprise. There were, there were a lot of varieties that were short supply. People a little disappointed because a lot of the retail sources just got all bought out. And mm. we never know with seeds. Sometimes there can actually be crop failures as well. The amazing thing about uh, multinationals and a lot of the seed We've got smaller, what I'll call boutique seed shops that are still doing plant breeding. Mm-hmm. We've even got a couple of folks in St. Louis County that on a minor level are, are doing some crossing and breeding and introducing some of their own materials. But by and large, there are about five major companies, multinationals, and uh, in some ways it's a disadvantage, but in many ways it's an advantage. They've got uh, plant geneticists that are hired, uh, very specialized, trained plant breeders that are doing a lot of the work. And uh, another advantage is some of the multinationals. If, in fact, they have a crop failure, a lot of the seed is produced in the uh, northwestern part of the United States, Idaho being a a very large seed production state, mainly because Mm -hmm. in the summer it can be hot and can be dry and they irrigate everything, so you don't want any disease issues that come with high humidity. So there can be a lot of production in the uh, western part of the United States. If they have a crop failure, they immediately turn around and they they move up their, their production efforts in the southern hemisphere and uh, where, in fact, uh, they're just moving into their growing season. And in many cases where we've had crop failures, I think of some of the corn crops, which could be really critical. You have a crop failure of seed. Uh, they've been able to get seed produced and shipped in here in the southern hemisphere and actually harvested in their fall and get it up here in our spring. So I've seen we're quite concerned, particularly agriculturally, where uh, so much of our food supply is dependent upon seed. If they had trouble, some of these larger corporations have been able to adjust their production into the southern hemisphere. And we really have not experienced uh, significant seed shortages. So that's the good thing, I guess, about things moving around. We still have these smaller shops, still have smaller companies that are doing a lot of the real interesting breeding work but a lot of the mainstay varieties are being produced by these big, large uh, multinationals nowadays. All right. Well, uh, you mentioned corn, and I guess corn is going to be what this year's vegetable of the year. That is. It's kind of interesting, <laughs> and that uh, that's in Duluth. That's the right. community garden program. What's interesting about that? Most people with a smaller community garden plot, and we've I've put in a couple of larger <laughs> plots actually for folks, and we've got a couple hundred people on one of those plots, but. Uh, the difficulty about corn on a smaller plot is mm. that uh, it takes a lot of space. Ah. So uh, corn is a crop that if I had, uh, you know, 100 square feet to grow on, I don't know how many how much corn I'd be putting in. I'd be focusing on the greens and the leaf lettuce mm-hmm. and the, uh, the broccolis that will produce and reproduce and continue to produce through the whole season to get a higher turnout for you. Nonetheless, if you want to put your whole plot in corn, certainly... Uh, yeah. It's a very, very nice uh, crop for us. sweet corn. We can grow some tremendous sweet corn. Uh, it's a challenging crop uh, from firsthand <laughs> experience. I'll, I will share that with you. Uh, everybody loves sweet corn. Uh, we do as humans, and deer love it, and raccoons certainly love it. If you're near any source of water, uh, that's a real favorite there. And uh, so it has some of its challenges. It's a warm season crop, so we've had a cool year. we got to get that seed out of the ground. We have a shorter growing season. Some of the very best super sweet varieties are a little longer in duration. It takes a little while for that sugar, those sugars to develop. Mm-hmm. 
And consequently, we have to let our soils warm so we can't plant too early. We're looking probably at about the third week in May at the earliest. And then uh, we, of course, have always got an early potential for an early frost to get us on the other end. So we're kind of limited in the varieties. We've got newer introductions, again, that have come along with a little shorter season. Uh, sugar contents are going up a little bit. And uh, the nice thing about growing a crop like sweet corn in the Northland is we don't have intensely warm temperatures, particularly mm-hmm. at night, so the sugar is retained. So I, I think we can grow the highest quality uh, sweet corn, at least uh, in this area where it's cooler, but we've got shorter days. We've got all these other issues that we have to work around, contend with. And uh, my experience is you're never going to get 100% of that crop. Uh, you're going to wow. give up some for one thing or another. And uh, you just have to be uh, happy with what you are able to produce. But can be a, really a spectacular crop for us, but uh, with a few asterisks, a few reservations there that we have to be aware of, Dave. Well, you uh, you said it uh, takes up a lot of space. For instance, uh, if you can only plant a few, I mean, how many uh, corn cobs can you get out of one one uh, plant? Well, with the sweet corn, this is what you're de- you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you uh, you really want to space it out. Uh, people make a mistake of putting it uh, too close together. Ah. And uh, field corn is different. And I've had this discussion with some of our, far- our farmers. You know, we can put in. Uh, I always thinking on an acre basis, thirty-five, forty thousand uh, seeds per acre on uh, field corn, and we're down to about ten or twelve thousand on a sweet corn. Meaning we're going to space it out and give it more room. If you give it plenty of room, say your uh, your rows are um, on uh, thirty, the minimum of thirty inches apart, uh, mm-hmm. up to thirty-six inches apart on center, then you want to go maybe uh, eight to ten inches apart uh, in that row. So you want to give them plenty of room, plenty of space a big plant mm-hmm. it requires uh room to grow those roots have to spread out it requires plenty of moisture it's a, a heavy what we call a heavy feeder requires quite a bit of nitrogen either from organic or inorganic sources and then if in fact you've got it spaced and you got the room uh you can certainly get two quality ears per stock okay. per plant in some cases uh you can get three if that plant is really uh well grown and if the season uh, permits. So, yes, uh, spread it out a little bit. That's right. a mistake that so many of our gardeners make. They've only got a limited amount of space. They put that seed in three to four inches apart, and mm-hmm. the seed, the plants compete with themselves. You never get a big enough plant to really set those ears and, and do what you like to have on those plants. Do these stalks need any support as they grow, or are they okay usually? Well, they usually can. They can. Uh, we'll have situations where we have heavy winds uh-huh. and, and where, uh, you know, the roots go down there. We've got what's called prop roots. They'll go down and chase the moisture. And once again, you've got to be sure if you are irrigating. And I mentioned it's a crop that requires uh, plenty of moisture. So the mistake, again, that people make, they'll irrigate and, and they'll plant uh, or irrigate shallow instead of putting an inch and a half or two inches of water on there, they'll put a half an inch or a quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. And those roots uh, sit up on the surface, and then we get a heavy wind and, and can really uh, lodge or push those plants over. And in many cases, uh, you can prop them up again. If you've got a small uh, planting in, in your garden, you can uh, reestablish them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stamp off at the ground or be pulled out of the ground, but you've got to straighten them out a little bit, which is kind of a pain. So, again, if you're going to be um, growing it, you're going to be watering, you're going to irrigate, we'll hit to July is a critical month for uh, sweet corn and moisture. 
typically our driest month of the year, and that's when the uh, the tassels are out there and, and the uh, the ears are beginning to set up and you need moisture. A great crop for us. It, mm-hmm. It's a very, very high-quality crop. I had the experience once because I do grow some corn, and I was coming up from the Twin Cities, and I came up Highway 65, lots of uh, corn production, lots of agriculture down there, and a lot of folks were just selling their corn right out of the field, very, very fresh. So I stopped and bought a half a dozen from one farm and then drove down the road or up the road a little bit farther and bought another half dozen and then bought another half dozen <laughs> and then uh, tried it all fresh yeah. and all get out and uh, nothing compares to what we could grow. So Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, I was quite impressed because I went and sampled a little bit of our own and, uh, mm-hmm. and the quality is uh, every bit as good or even higher because, again, I think we've got the bright light and we've got the cooler temperatures. So right. it can be a good crop for us, but it uh, it does certainly present uh, some unique challenges. <laughs> short, short season, cool soil temperatures, and, of course, we've got a lot of wooded areas around, so we've got critters of all types that would like to sample that that crop yeah. as well, Dave. So well, it sounds like it might take some work, but it's, it's certainly worthwhile if you can get it to go. Oh, it's the best, yeah. Very, right. very good. You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I did hear your USDA uh, promotion there, and I probably a New Year's uh, promotion. Better mm-hmm. health is what they're interested in. They talked sure. about eating your vegetables and getting out there for a walk and a little activity. <laughs> so I thought uh, that's really interesting, and uh, we have a tremendous amount of interest in better nutrition. You know, we've got this All-American Selections uh, Committee, and they introduce their new selections every year. And we've got the 2024s out right now, and it's kind of interesting. They've got uh, three vegetable varieties on there that really caught my attention, two broccolis. And one is uh, called Purple Magic. Uh, the difficulty, they introduce these uh, these introductions. They're very difficult to get some seeds, so I'm trying to line up a little bit of seed because I would like to uh, grow that one. This is the first broccoli that has a, uh, a purple head. Oh. It's got little tinges, little tinges of purple, but this is a purple-headed broccoli called Purple Magic. And uh, I'll spend a little more time on that, but we've got another one. They have a second one called Skywalker, which has got... Apparently tender stalks, according to the mm. descriptions, and smaller florets at the top. Instead of a big head, you got smaller florets, which is what most people would probably use and steam and put on your plate. They'd be cutting the uh, the larger heads apart, but this kind of grows them on individual stalks, mm. almost a little bit by, like broccolini, but it's a true broccoli. And uh, they'll they'll cut the you make it real easy to harvest and cut those off and steam them or or consume them fresh. So that one's called Skywalker. That has a lot of interest. But I think uh, Purple Magic is the one that's going to catch people's attention. Uh, you know they have both national winners and they have regional winners as these uh, crops sometimes will certainly perform differently in mm-hmm. different parts of the country. And uh, Purple Magic is introduced as a, a national winner, and there have been a lot of accolades for it. You know, with, with that purple pigment, we've got uh, these anthocyanins, which are the antioxidants that protect cells, and they're there in the plant itself because it protects the plant cells. And as we consume these as, as humans, uh, we actually get the, the beneficial effect of an antioxidant factor wow. in the veggies as we consume it to also protect some of our cells. So in terms of uh, minimizing the potential for disease and nothing, nothing is magic, no magic uh, potions out there, right. but certainly 
Certainly, these are uh, consuming veggies that are higher in antioxidants. We know that's going to be very beneficial for health. So this is one. That's the purple color there. We are seeing colors everywhere, really, in the vegetable world, from potatoes to now uh, to cauliflower, certainly in the last couple of years. And now even looking at broccoli, which before this time was exclusively green and different shades of green, and now we've got that nice, beautiful purple head out there. So. <laughs> It's going to be interesting, Dave. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do a program, our spring program, uh, in March, March 16th, our spring gardening extravaganza. I've titled it Coloring Our World, Mm -hmm. and we are going to focus on the meaning of all this color and how this fits in. Uh, We're going to take a look at both the science of it, and we're going to take a look at uh, the aesthetics as you plan a both the flower garden and your vegetable garden with uh, with color in mind and all of the implications there. So that's going to be fun. Wow. That's coming up a couple. Actually, it's coming up uh, two months from today on March 16th. We'll be down at the depot, but it's uh, it's going to be a very, very fun day. It always is, and we'll give you more information <laughs> on that. But Yeah, interesting to know that uh, uh, it's not just the color change, but you actually get more nutrients from, from the different colors. Well, that's the big thing that's been coming along. There's awareness. The interesting thing, if I can take you back to the potato crop, now there's a crop we can grow in this area, and it's sustained our uh, original settlers and our farmers for a long time because it's a cool season crop. But the original potatoes, they were all uh, laced with antioxidants. They're very colorful. The flesh was purple and it was red mm-hmm. and uh, deep yellows. And these are the antioxidants that actually protected the plant's tubers. So they had a beneficial effect. And then we began to select for white varieties. And, of course, the white uh, potato varieties are what dominate most of what's produced. And it's a very big crop, largely because a lot goes into processing, chips as well as french fries. But it is the number one horticultural crop probably for that reason. But uh, these are, for the most part, white-fleshed varieties. And uh, But we're going back and uh, looking in, at some of the older heirloom varieties that have the color. And with the color comes this additional uh, nutritional benefit that comes from all these antioxidants. So... We are looking at color everywhere in the vegetable garden, and um, it's kind of intrigued. I think uh, the more we grow and the more you consume and the more you preserve, uh, the greater the likelihood we're going to actually put these things on our plate. And as that promotion from the U.S. Department of Agriculture said, try to get some more fruits and vegetables. So for ourselves as adults, for your kids, for your grandkids, for the neighbor's kids, uh, encourage them to grow some of their own, and if they're growing some of their own, more than likely they'll be eating some of their own. Yeah. Well, it's uh, cold, and I guess we can go indoors and talk indoor plants. That'll be next here as the Bob Olin Show continues on KDAL. All right, sheltered from all the uh, cold weather are your indoor plants, and that's always a good thing. And, Bob, before we get into that, you've got an outdoor plant probably still in your home called a Christmas tree. Is that still up? <laughs> Still on, but okay. not for long. <laughs> <laughs> it's finally starting to droop, is it? Uh, yeah, I'm getting a little needle drop there. Oh, okay. As soon as it goes outside, yes. <laughs> well, good to know I it's still hanging in there. Plants. Yeah, I love houseplants, and that's one of my one of my favorites, even if we're not going to be growing it year-round. But uh, love Now it is winter, and you mentioned before, I think, what, houseplants take a little break, too, during the winter, even though you might not realize that. Well, that's the interesting thing. Now, just in the mm-hmm. last couple of days, you know, Dave, you're the you're the best recorder <laughs> of the extended day length that we have. Getting uh, a little bit longer. We, 
Yeah, how much are we getting? Uh, let's see, uh, what are we? Seven forty nine is your sun up this morning, four forty eight this afternoon, so we're closing in on uh, five o'clock pretty soon. Right. You can really notice that difference mm-hmm. to uh both on both ends. And actually the plants notice the difference. Okay. I've got uh a chaffaro, uh an umbrella plant, which is a great house plant. Uh it grow it can grow large, so it's kind of a specimen plant, but it's not gonna push up at the eight foot level through the ceiling as some of these <laughs> larger house plants can. But uh just noticed uh yesterday as a matter of fact that I'm getting new growth on that. Now it's in a southern exposure, so there's plenty of light and light is what drives the growth house plants. Mm-hmm. So everything kinda kinda settles down when we get into the darkest part of the winter and we gotta be a little careful. We don't wanna overwater, we don't want any fertility. These plants are going into kind of a I call it a state of suspended animation where mm-hmm. they're just gonna sit there and they're going to stay alive and we're gonna keep them green. But uh, we really don't want to push that growth because, again, light is the real driver. So this particular plant, uh, the Schaffler I was uh, mentioning, with new growth on it is in a southern window. But there's the trigger. That trigger is extending uh, day length. So watch your house plants a little bit, particularly those that are getting a little bit more light. And that's an indication that you can um, watch the watering. With the more plant tissue out there, we can add a little bit more moisture. And uh, it might be a little early. I usually use about February 1st as a time when I want to get a little bit of additional. We use water-soluble fertilizers on these where you, you know, you've got a dry crystalline material and you add it to a gallon of water. And I usually suggest maybe February 1st about half strength, mm-hmm. half of what's recommended on the package. And uh, providing a little bit of additional fertility to them. And uh, But maybe if you see new growth, that's an indication that they can take a little bit more water, a little bit of fertility again to encourage uh, that new growth. So that's a good sign. That's a sign spring is coming and they do change. They do change very quickly for us, Dave. But I think I have one of those out. plants. I, what was it called again? Chef- well, this one's the, the Schifflera, yeah, or the uh, they'll call them an umbrella tree. It's All got right. what we call a, a compound pinnate leaf, where it's got a bunch of little leaves right. that jump off from a main stem. You I think, think I have one those? similar, but it drops leaves in the winter time. I noticed, but by by spring now, those they'll, they'll hang on again. So I don't know. Maybe I'm giving yeah, it too they, much water. They do drop. They do drop leaves, and okay. you can't overwater them. You got to be a little careful, particularly. The older leaves down at the base of the plant, they mm-hmm. will shed those pretty readily, and that's combination. That can be just low light. The older material, of okay. course, it's being shaded by the upper material, and then we just naturally have less light. So that that's older and tends to die off, but again, right. we get the new newer shoots that come out from the upper portion of the Yeah, plant. I did see some new new growth there myself, so that's a good sign. It is a very good sign, and I'm surprised just as uh, a trigger, but when you think of it, the darkest day of the year was the 21st. (laughs) We're getting close to, what, three weeks, almost a month away from the darkest day of the year. We are definitely moving along, and then it does tend to really accelerate in a hurry as we get toward uh, the spring equinox in March there, March 20th or so. And uh, so it will change pretty readily, and we can start uh, taking a little look at houseplants. For the rest of them, a couple quick little things. Uh, we will oftentimes pick up a little bit of a, a film of dust on those, so you can very carefully, uh, you can wash with a, um, you know, you can use a temperate or a room temperature water is probably the best thing you can use. If you're going to use a little soap, I'd stay away from the dish soaps. There are some uh, soaps that are really uh, formulated just for 
uh, plants. Uh, these are some of the, we call them non-ionic surfactants where we don't have any sudsing. There's, there's soaps that don't suds up, and that'll take off a little bit of that uh, dust layer, and that opens up. You know, the leaves of a, of a house plant or a green plant have got these specialized cells that uh, the plant breathes with, stomata they call them, so the, uh, they're going to open up if we clog all those up with, with uh, dust from uh, just being inside. Uh, then they clog up. So there is a little bit of a benefit for doing a little bit of uh, careful washing, uh, particularly of uh, plants that have any kind of a waxy surface. Uh, you know, you look at your uh, jade plants, which are very waxy, very thick leaf. We look at the uh, all the Christmas and Thanksgiving cacti, which actually those aren't leaves. Those are thick stems, but they're very waxy. So all those plants can take a little bit of a room temperature water with a non-sudsing uh, soap if you have that available, and uh, that can be beneficial for a plant. Um, you know, moving around, if you want to give them a little kick and you've got a better east window or you've got a better south window, you can start moving those around gradually as well, and you'll be surprised how that additional amount of uh, sunlight will actually encourage growth. So at this point, you can even think if you want to start uh, taking some cuttings, if you want additional plants, that can be done. We had a caller not too long ago who was asking about geraniums. And uh, you might, maybe maybe we're a little early, maybe about February 1st, you can start cutting back some of your geraniums that you've kept alive. These are ones that are potted up, and you've been growing them in a uh, location where there is adequate light. You can start taking some cuttings. If you start taking them early, then the plant will regrow, and you'll get a nice full plant a little bit later in the season that you can move out, and it will be uh, setting the, the flowers that you're looking for. So geraniums are favorite. A lot of people bring them in. Uh, they're not re- they really don't have a storage mechanism. We have to kind of keep them. We keep them alive coming through the low light period, or sometimes people actually just take them out of the. Uh, the soil entirely and you can hang them into a dark moist area so the the plant stays alive with the stored sugars in the um, in the tissue itself and then you replant them up and uh, they can take off again so there always lose a, flu- a few but uh, geraniums certainly are a plant that we can keep uh, for any number of years and we can take cuttings from them and we can start the new plants but the the cutting process and plant propagation again is light dependent but as the days are getting longer, that's a mechanism that, um, that we're going to start setting some new roots on these cuttings, and those plants will begin to take off. So house plants are kind of a fun way to get us through the uh, the dark, cold period of the winter and looking forward to uh, those spring days uh, and uh, when we get outside and do some of our planting there, Dave. It won't be long, I hope. Uh, middle of January now, and like you said, it'll be a couple months, and you'll be having your special uh, uh, early shows already. So you know we're getting closer to spring. You know, we moved to a couple of them. We got another one on the range. So we're mm-hmm. moving, uh, moving them in a little bit earlier this year, and right. uh, part, and it'll be kind of fun kicking off the new year. As I mentioned, we've got a lot of new material. This is a hobby that is uh, certainly as vibrant and as active as it ever was. I think I look at the catalogs. I look at the work that so many plant breeders are doing, both at universities throughout the country as well as the major uh, commercial outlets uh new introductions everywhere so it's pretty exciting and not just on the vegetable side some tremendous new and very very colorful uh ornamentals that are coming along as well and we get another chance another program will kind of feature some of the very very attractive uh, new flowering plants so these are kind of um these are gardening's a hobby that has many many benefits um 
psychological is one of them just the fact that we've got new new growth coming every every year and and of course the vegetable side and the fruit side which we're well aware of uh the necessity really to uh, consume more of these and then uh, the fact that when you grow your own you know where it came from you don't have to use any pesticides at all and uh, you know um, that that quality is going to be there that you grow this far north that's the thing that's kind of interesting um you know, we always bemoan the fact we have a shorter growing season up here, and we uh, were challenged to grow a lot of crops, particularly um, the warm season crops. But temperatures are warming a little bit, but they're not getting extreme. Our growing season is expanding a little bit, which is going to be beneficial. We had just a, we always get that early fall frost last year. We had one of those this year again, but then we had this very prolonged warm fall season, and this tends to be characteristic of what's happening with our climate uh, where we're getting these prolonged warm fall periods so one thing in the programming we're doing we're going to be talking a little bit about not just uh, enduring climate change but actually benefiting from it and and being aware of the fact we have spring summer and fall growing season so i'm going to divide it up three ways and i think you want to have your mindset uh, of how you're going to plant for spring crops and I think of some of the leafy greens, the spinach and so forth, do the very best in the early spring when temperatures are cooler and daylight's getting expanding. Then our main season crops, which most people will be focusing on, you're going to be ripening tomatoes and so forth at that time, sweet corn. And then uh, some of the fall crops that will do and, and prosper very nicely. I mentioned this purple magic, uh, new purple broccoli that should do extremely well coming into the fall as well provided we don't get that real uh, killing freeze which we've not had we've had light frosts and we want to uh, protect from some of that and actually some of these uh, cabbage family will tolerate that very readily with a lot of without a lot of damage uh, light frost doesn't hurt them and then uh, we can finish up with a prolonged fall season so things are changing there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it Dave they're changing very gradually and uh, this is something that we're all trying to do what we can a little bit to help out in the environment, but there are kind of mega trends in place, and I think adjusting and adapting to some of this change and actually adapting to our benefit, I think, uh, would be good for all of us. Dave. Fantastic. Bob, thank you, and we'll catch you again next week. Another Bob Olin Show next Tuesday when it's going to be a little warmer than it is this week for sure. We'll catch you then, Bob. Thank you, Dave. Have a good week.